to Faith Foundations with Open the Word with Circle of Friends podcast. I'm your host, Gwen McCaslin, for this discipleship series that we're releasing every Wednesday. Um, I have a friend that likes to joke that, you know, it's coming out on Wednesday. We can call it Gwen's Day. <laughs> um, and so I think maybe that's even been in some of the materials and stuff that you guys have seen. But um, every Wednesday, kind of what we're doing here is releasing a series of just foundational pieces that sometimes we get in Sunday school and sometimes we don't. Um, and so uh, today we are on podcast 106, and um, one of the things I'm going to be talking about today is the voice of the martyrs. Um, and so um, most of my focus today will actually be on um, the early church uh in Acts, but the thing that we need to understand is that there is more Christians being killed for their faith now than there has been throughout history. Um, and so this is something that is very much current. This is something that is very much happening in places all around the globe um, where uh, governments and people groups are becoming increasingly hostile to Christians. Um, and honestly, uh, there are several in the church that are predicting that this is heading our way as well. Now, we, whether we may die for our faith or just suffer um, persecution for our faith, we obviously don't know. But there is an increasing movement that um, calls Christians who try to hold their lives in alignment to the Word of God, they're calling it fanatical. Um, that is increasing, it's growing. And so there, there is a very realistic sense in which we may someday have to decide whether we are going to stand consistent with scriptures or whether we are going to make some compromises. Um, and actually, as I record this, there have been in the last several months a lot of believers that are coming out and apologizing for things that they've said 20 years ago or 10 years ago or, you know, and softening their stance on things. And I want to challenge believers with this thought. When your walk with God starts looking more like what the world thinks and feels and lives and less different and less unique, then we have a problem because we are to be at enmity with the world. We are not to be saying the same thing. So if we look the same, we sound the same, we think the same, something's wrong. Because when God came, he established a new kingdom and a new covenant. And that covenant literally took the world and flips it on its nose. Um, it, it's an upside-down kingdom living. And so we are aliens and foreigners in this land. And so we should not look and sound like the people around us. We should be saying a different message. We should be communicating the truth of God's word. And so if we start to sound the same, something's wrong. And that's about all I'm going to say on that today. But moving into this, let's talk about um, one of the things that I had yet to mention. We've been talking about the things that affirm the authority of Scripture, the authenticity of the faith. Um, and so there's two things I want to kind of bring up today in conjunction with themselves. Um, and one of them is the non-Christian contemporary sources that actually affirm the details of the Bible and the lives of the martyrs. There's a couple of books that I'm going to mention today. Um, writers, 
there's Fox Book of the Martyrs, which is kind of one of those resources that Christians have used along the way that kind of give us some history of what happened after the Book of Acts um, and kind of fill in some details. Um, but there were three main writers. Um, there's uh, a guy named Cornelius Tychicus. There's um, another person called Fliny the Younger, and I might be butchering how these are said. But And then there's a third one who's called Flavius Josephus. Now, Josephus's writings are pretty... Um, pretty common for Christians to talk about um, because he was a historian. And so he actually does things like he places Jesus in history for us. He, he is a um, extra biblical resource that is not necessarily a Christian. He was not a believer, but he talks about the events of his time and his life, the things that he saw and what was going on around him where he lived at the time. And one of the things he talks about is how um, Jesus was crucified under Pilate, um, and he places the officials where they were and that kind of thing, and and corroborates, or what is that the word I want, that um, he lines up the details of the Bible with his account, and they line up perfectly. So he's one of those extra biblical resources that allow us to know that we can have confidence in the details that are listed in Scripture um, about the culture, the officers in time, and placed in certain regions, those kinds of things. So, and then you've got these other two resources that I'll get to them in a minute, but they were not Christian resources, and they actually considered Christians um, (laughs) to be a plague of their time. And so um, I'll read a couple quotes a little bit later on for that, but I want to start with what does scripture actually say about um, persecution and about dying for your faith and those kinds of things. Um, And so the... (sighs) The biggest thing you need to understand is the fact that so many Christians were willing to lay down their lives for f- to follow Christ, to um, communicate his message, was in and of itself one of the biggest uh, proofs for the authority and the tenacity of the gospel. Um, because you had all of these lives change, and these believers weren't lukewarm. They were sold out to the point that um, when they were rounded up and questioned, they would hold fast to their faith. And and it's interesting because as you'll see when we get to some of those writers, you're going to notice that there's tests that were put, those Christians were put through. You know, did they worship other gods and was there proof? You know, if they renounced, could they give proof that they worshiped other gods? Because that was one of the defining things about these believers as they worshiped one God and he was he was the God of the the Bible. Um, and so okay, so let's start and I'm gonna start us in Hebrews because um, Hebrews 11:33 is the faith chapter and it actually persecution is not something new to the New Testament. It actually goes back all the way through Scripture. Um, Prophets uh, were definitely not treated well in history. So Hebrews 11, 33 through 40. Who through faith subdued kingdoms, worked righteousness, obtained promises, stopped the mouths of lions, quenched the violence of fire, escaped the edge of the sword, out of weakness were made strong, became valiant in battle, and turned to 
fight the armies of the aliens. Women received their dead, raised to life again, and others were tortured, not accepting deliverance that they might obtain a better resurrection. Still others had a trial of mocking and scourging, yes, and of chains and imprisonment. They were stoned, they were sawn in two. They were tempted and were slain with the sword. They wandered about in sheepskins and goatskins, being destitute, afflicted, tormented, of whom the world was not worthy. They wandered in deserts and mountains, in dens and caves of the earth. And in all these, having obtained a good testimony through faith, did not receive the promise, God having provided something better for us, that they should be made perfect apart from us. And what this is talking about is everybody that followed Christ, that um, believed in God's promise and in his, they're all the Old Testament folks that looked forward to the cross. Okay, and it, so you get the distinction in the bottom that we, the us, is all of us that have come since the cross. So we look back to Christ's death on the cross. They looked forward to it. They had yet to see that in fulfillment. Um, okay, so you can kind of see here just some of the stuff that they, they experienced and went through. Um, being persecuted because of one's commitment to God is not something that was foreign to the saints. It was, in some ways, a normal way of life for prophets and for those New Testament believers um, after Christ left because they went through a season of profound persecution. Um, We'll talk a little bit about some of the things they experienced under Nero and um, those kinds of things uh, based on our resources and stuff. Okay, Matthew 23, uh, it's a passage where Jesus is rebuking the religious leaders of his day, and he's got like seven woes, okay? And so he, in that moment, is, um, you will see Jesus often do, he's either acting as a prophet, as a priest, or as a king. Um, And this is one of those scenes where he is acting as the prophet, and he's pronouncing woes. Um, And so then he makes this assessment in verse 34 and 35. Therefore, indeed, I send you prophets, wise men, and scribes. Some of them you will kill and crucify. Some of them you will scourge in your synagogues and persecute from city to city. That on you may come all the righteous blood shed on earth, from the blood of the righteous Abel to the blood of Zechariah, the son of, I'm going to butcher that, Berechiah. Uh, whom you murdered between the temple and the altar. They intentionally rejected the righteousness just as their forefathers did. So Jesus attributes the guilt um, of all those who are murdered in righteousness and the prophets on them. This was such a huge statement because before them stood Jesus, the one who was greater than all of those prophets that had gone before that they had killed. And that was exactly what they were fixing to do to him. That's exactly what was going to happen. When you get to Matthew 23, we are getting closer and closer to the cross um, and to the week of Jesus coming back into Jerusalem. And um, and literally, you see him come in as a king of peace, riding on a donkey. If he did come in on a horse, that was a sign that the king was coming in to do war. But Jesus came on a donkey 
because he was coming in as a sign of peace. Um, and the interesting thing is right before he would have ridden into town, I just learned this with this week, he was anointed um, by one of the women that surrounded him. And so he would have literally walked into the week of his death, the week of Passover, the, that holy week, smelling like the fragrance of that incense. And the interesting thing is kings of that time would have had a fragrance. And so when they walked around, they would have walked around with that fragrance. Now that brings to mind to me the the verse later in scripture that talks about us being the aroma of Christ to others. Um, and so that smell would have been just very heavy on him having just been anointed, but it would have followed all the way through his persecution to his death. Okay, so there's a fun little cultural tidbit that you don't know if you don't understand, you know, some of the the stuff happening at the times. But okay, so sometimes for me to understand that that God himself is standing in front of these people um, brings the gravity of exactly who Jesus was in light of who went before him. So um, in this passage, what you see here is him talking about how they're basically guilty of killing all of these prophets that have gone before. And that is right on the heels of exactly what they're, they're going to turn around and do to him in about a week. Um, and so that hits. That hits pretty strong. Okay, so keeping on, I'm going to hit another section here. Um, in Mark chapter 12, uh, verses 1 through 12, we have um, Jesus teaching parables. Um, and so he's talking about this parable in particular is about God sending many servants to his vineyard. Um, now, in Scripture, the vineyard is usually almost always referring to Israel. Um, and so he's sending all of these servants to Israel, but they end up killing them until finally God says he'd send his own son. Now, you got to remember, this is all before they kill Jesus. Um, and so this is all foreshadowing of what is going to happen on the cross. The story illustrates how the prophets were sent to their own people who rejected and killed them. Uh, the promise at the end of the story was that the vineyard would be put into the church's hands to cultivate. So in other words, that Israel, um, oh, how, do I, how do I put that? That uh, God was going to add to the nation of Israel all of these other people, and that the church would be um, the caretaker, so to speak, of the gospel message. He came into his own, and his own received him not. Um, so scripture is pretty clear that, you know, he, he intentionally came to the chosen ones first, and then he opens the door, and he grafts in all of us, which I don't know about you guys, but I'm so grateful that God did that for us. Okay. Um, moving on, uh, let's go to Matthew 10, 17 through 21. Jesus warns those who follow him very clearly. Uh, but beware of men, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues. Uh, you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. Uh, verse 21, now brother will deliver up brother to death and the father his child and children will rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death 
Um, now, I want you to remember this verse particularly because when we read the accounts, you're going to see that there would be anonymous postings that would just list believers' names. And it would literally, there there was just like this sign would go up that would have all of these names on it of supposed Christians. And so these people would be pulled in and they would be literally assessed. You're going to see that in some of the extra resources I read in a minute. Um, okay, so who was the first martyr that we have after Christ? Um, some of you are going to know that that was Stephen, um, or Stephen, depending on how you say that word. Um, but he was a deacon in the church. He was not one of the original 12. He actually becomes the first martyr because he stands up to teach the Pharisees, to remind them that their fathers reject their rejection in the wilderness of God and Jesus's words in Matthew 23. Um, it's one of the greatest and boldest sermons actually recorded in scripture. Um, one of the things he says is, which of the prophets did your father not persecute? Ooh. And they killed those who foretold of the coming of the just one, of whom you now have become the betrayers and murderers. Now, this is after Christ's death, okay? So this is right in the aftermath of that. Is it any wonder they killed him on the spot? <laughs> you know, some with some of this, it's just... Um, yeah, uh, one of the things you, you see in another passage is that these new believers had their lands confiscated, they had businesses taken, um, and so there just was, the persecution was on multiple, multiple levels, um, but we're told in Luke that there arose a great persecution against the church, which was at Jerusalem, so that they all were scattered abroad throughout the regions of Judea and Samaria, except for the apostles. Um, now, the one thing I, I read uh, in my research that at about this time, they think that about 2,000 Christians suffered martyrdom during this time, as Acts eleven nineteen says. Um, those who were scattered after the persecution that arose over Stephen traveled as far as um, Phoenicia, uh, Cyprus, and Antioch. Um, and so basically, Stephen's, Stephen's death kicked off an intense period of persecution. Um, another source I read talked about how there was kind of a control vacuum going on where the Jewish Sanhedrin and the high priests were able to pull people in and actually do judgment themselves. Um, and so they had been given a lot of authority um, to kind of do some of their own dirty work, so to speak, on this. Um, and so what that created is this whole um, persecution, literally, by the Jews, um, by the Pharisees, the Sadducees, the, the people that were so opposed to Jesus, um, actually did incredible amounts of harm to the church. And now you have to understand, this would have been the brothers, the sisters, the mothers, the fathers of the people that started following Jesus. Um, so this very much was their families turning them in at times. This would have been the the people they were trying to share the good news of Jesus with, turning around and reporting them to the government or to the religious leaders so that they had were drug in and questioned and and eventually led off to even be martyred. And so this was a really difficult time for believers. But you know what happened with the church? It didn't die. It exploded. Um, 
Okay, so at this point, I'm going to read a little bit about um, from Tychicus, um, because I think you can get a feel for uh, for just kind of how the Christians were viewed by the Romans um, and by the people, uh, pagan culture of the time. Uh, this is how Tychicus tells the story. Um, but neither human help nor gifts from the emperor nor all of the ways of placating heaven could stifle scandal or disbelief at the fire that had taken place by the order of Nero. So in other words, he Nero has done incredible amounts of things to try to blame somebody else for the fire that he ordered. Okay? Um, and so he's he's talking about that in context. This this burned a lot of Rome. The amount of devastation that this fire caused was substantial. Um, and so, of course, you know, the king doesn't want to be blamed for it. So there's this massive uh, blame game that kind of happens and, you know, all kinds of things that go on. Um, Nero substituted culprits and punished with the most refinements of, cr- of cruelty, a class of man loathed for their vices, whom the crowd called Christians. Um, now, Christus, the founder of that name, okay, and what you need to understand here is um, this is written in Latin, and so instead of Christ like we have it in our scriptures, Christos is the equivalent. So Christos, the founder of this name, Christian, Okay, had undergone the death penalty in the reign of Tiberius um, by sentence of the procurator Pontius Pilate. That should sound familiar to us, right? Because what this does is it places Jesus in the context of the Roman structure and regions and who was over what region where, um, and it, it notes his trial, um, so this almost functions as a legal document for us. Um, and the pernicious superstition was checked for just a moment, only to break out once more, not merely in Judea, the home of the disease, but in the capital, Rome itself, where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and become fashionable. Okay, so you can kind of feel this. I mean, this is just, this is a plague. They thought they had it in check when they took Jesus out. And then all of a sudden it breaks out and it breaks out everywhere like a disease. Um, And so for them, Christianity and this movement started by this founder Christ was literally a plague that they could not get rid of. Um, Now, in light of COVID, we we all understand how fast things can spread. Well, that was their their approach to Christianity at the time. Um, And now you got to understand, what does it say about Rome? (laughs) Rome is where all things horrible or shameful in the world collect and become fashionable. And I'm going to continue reading here. First, then the confessed members of the sect were arrested. Okay, now this is believers. These are Christians, followers of Christ. They were confessed members. So in other words, they were admitting that they were followers of Christ. They were arrested. Next, on their disclosures or on their testimony, vast numbers were convicted. Not so much on account of arson. So in other words, not so much for the fire that was set by Nero. Um as for hatred of the human race. 
and the derision accompanied to their end. They were covered with wild beast skin and torn to death by dogs, or they were fastened on crosses, and when daylight failed, were burned to serve as lamps at night. Nero had offered his gardens for the spectacle and gave an exhibit in his circus, mixing with the crowd in the clothes as a charioteer or mounting on his chariot. Hence, in spite of a guilt which had earned the most exemplary punishment, there arose a sentiment of pity due to the impression that they were being sacrificed, sacrifices not for the welfare of the state, but for the ferocity of a single man. So in other words, even culture at the time started to pity Christians because they recognized that they weren't being killed and tortured for the sake of community at large. It was about one man's ego. Um, And so that kind of sums up from a secular source that did not appreciate or respect Christians that is just kind of talking about the times. Um, And so that's Tychicus and... um, what he writes has a lot of that firsthand account evidence, like we talked about. So in other words, the only way he would have known this is if he was living in this place at this time, writing his contemporary stuff. Now, how do we have this kind of stuff, like Tychicus? Well, we have it because those early Christian scribes recognized how valuable this stuff was, that this was history that needed to be preserved. And so they preserved it accurate, even if the sentiments within it did not match their belief system. They preserved history because they knew it was important. Um, Okay, I'm going to stop here for today and end the podcast here. Um, I'm going to pick up with a point two um, for next week where I'm going to pick up and talk about what the actual disciples and apostles um, experienced in their lifetimes and at their death. Um, And then I will also share some of the others, Pliny the Younger and Josephus, some of the things that were said by him. Um, This has been today's podcast. Thanks for joining. Thanks for listening today. Be sure to subscribe so you don't miss any episodes. We'd love to hear from you, so find us on Facebook and Instagram at Open the Word Podcast or send us an email to openthewordpodcast at gmail.com. Is it time for you to plan a day trip with your peeps? Come and stay a while at Shia Market in Berlin. There is something for everyone, no matter what your taste or style may be. Visit the Village Gift Barn for your custom floral arrangements and timeless accessories for your home. Stroll upstairs to Shia's Style Boutique for your perfect outfit. Everything from accessories to shoes. Be inspired at country gatherings with decor from modern farmhouse to transitional design. Then, meander through the gardens for a large selection of houseplants. And last but not least, order your perfect cup of brew at the Buggy Brew Coffee Company. End your day by gathering to relax in our courtyard. You will leave feeling connected and refreshed. Step back in time with a stay at one of the oldest buildings in historic Berlin, Ohio, the Worthman House. This charming building has a rich history with origins dating back to as early as the mid-1800s. 
The newly restored two-bedroom, one-bathroom suite has hardwood floors and gorgeous chestnut trim throughout. It is also outfitted with locally made Amish furniture. It can sleep six and offers a beautiful panoramic view of Berlin's Main Street. Its location in the heart of Berlin is an ideal spot for walking to various restaurants and shops. Book your stay at the Worthman House through VRBO.